and in your Bibles, that's on page 990. You need to follow it because you won't know the story at all. 990, Luke 15, and it's... uh, starting at verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the puds that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brothers come back, he said. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Oh, my son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wonderful, Alan, uh, thank you very much indeed. Now, I, I'm going to give just a, a short little epilogue to our series this morning. But before I do, I'd love to invite Ross and Esther Mitchell to come and uh, join me. Some of you will recognize Ross and Esther, and others, you, you, these will be uh, new faces to you. But Ross and Esther were members of our congregation here uh, and uh, regularly attending, part of a house group. And through about two years ago, and actually well, prior to that, uh, the Lord stirring their hearts, calling them to uh, go and serve him overseas, and particularly uh, through INF, International uh, Nepal Fellowship, uh, through that, that sort of agency that looks to uh, help people uh, engage with the Lord's work in Nepal. And uh, they're back here now after two years, yes. uh, two, th- all three of them, as you can see. Uh, Esther, any moment now, about to give birth, which is wonderful. Uh, good time of year to do that kind of thing. Uh, and so uh, what I'm going to do is just hand straight over to them. They've got a few uh, pictures and slides to bring us up to speed with what they're doing and to share a little bit of what uh, God has been sharing with them and doing in and through them over these last two years. Uh, let's, let's welcome them. It's great to see you guys. Thank you very much. Um, yes, I'm Ross. This is Esther. And um, as Tim has shared, we spent a, a bit of time here in this church before heading out to Nepal. Uh, if we could have the first slide. Um, this is some of the views that we were not treated to in the area that we lived in. Uh, we lived in the low-down flat area of Nepal, just on the, uh, next to the border of India, uh, where you can't see any mountains, just fields, just flatness for miles. Um, but they were there, and uh, I figured maybe you'd like to see them. So, there they are. Um, we lived in a place called Nepal Guns. Next slide, please. Um, which was a bit more uh, like this. This is the kind of uh, Tarkari Bazaar or the uh, vegetable market. Nepal Guns is the third largest city in Nepal. Has about 60,000 people there. Uh, and uh, as I was saying before, is uh, on the border uh, of India. Um, so these photos, just uh, next one, please, gives a, a bit of a, a flavor of uh, the place. Lots of color, lots of vibrancy. One of the things that we noticed about coming back to the UK is that we're all very autumnal. And I'm, you know, no, no different, you know, wearing dark colors, but in Nepal, it's all bright and vibrant. So, uh, next one. Uh, it's also a monsoonal place, so we were treated to some good uh, opportunities for wading and uh, swimming, which is nice. So, um, okay. Um, next slide, please. Okay. Um, Yes, we were uh, working with INF, that's the International Nepal Fellowship, which was started in 1952 by some missionaries from the UK. Uh, They started with just one hospital in one district of Nepal, and that has grown now so that there are health and development uh, ministries and work going on in seven different districts. Um, Esther was the main INF worker, um, and she's going to talk a little bit about this slide and, and, and her work. Okay, so I'm a physiotherapist by vocation, um, and I was the official visa holder, which meant that uh, I had to report to the government and prove that I was working, um, while Ross did his own thing. Um, My role was a split role, and this is the first half of it. This is the local government hospital in Nepalgunj. It treats the poorest of the poor. Anyone who can pay goes to a private hospital. Anybody who can't ends up here, and they're really not treated very well. Um, My role was to work alongside the government physiotherapist to help develop him, um, to challenge him, 
um, and also to train physiotherapy students um, who were doing the only qualification um, course available within Nepal. Next slide, please. And this is my other place of work. This is um, the community. Um, I would go out into villages, sometimes just a few miles away from the city. Sometimes it meant traveling into the hills for a week at a time and going extremely rurally. Um, and I would work alongside community workers, untrained people, and help them to understand and recognize basic disability and how they could help those disabled people. Um, this is the classic situation I would be working in, often on a mat on the floor, often surrounded by curious onlookers. Um, and the work was very different because these people were often very poor, had never been to a hospital in their lives, um, had never seen a doctor. And so the first thing we had to do was figure out if we knew what was going on with them. Um, next slide, please. Uh, this little boy um, is actually not so little. He was actually 14 years old. Um, and he crawled on his hands and knees over boulders for an hour and a half to get to a house where we were working. Um, he had, since birth, had problems walking. He fell over a lot. Um, and when we reviewed him, he presented very much like he actually had cerebral palsy. Um, next slide, please. This child was three years old, but certainly didn't look it. Um, I met this child in a squatter's village. It's a village that the people have built with their own hands on land which doesn't belong to them, um, land that belongs to a wealthy landowner. This child had never talked, it didn't really interact, and it had never learnt to sit or to stand up, and its mother brought it to see if we could give it some medicine to make it normal. Next one. Um, this slide, I hope that you can see it, it's a wee bit dark. This man is called Ledu Chowdhury. Um, he is the most pitiful person I came across in my whole two years in Nepal. He was a laborer, extremely poor, and when the rains came this year, he fell off the roof of a house that he was building, and he broke his back, and he severed his spinal cord, and he became paralyzed. But he was so poor, he couldn't afford an operation to fix it, and the hospital sent him home, and he lay in this situation. I don't know whether you can see, but he's lying on a very short bed that's just made of wood and rope. When I saw him, he'd been lying like that for two months and his skin had broken down, he was covered in insects, he was lying in his own waist. He smelt so much that his family would try not to go into the room. And this is the people who INF exists to help, to show them that they are something, to give them their dignity, and to show them, through caring for them, that Jesus really, really loves them. Moving on to the next one. Um, the word for shade in Nepali is chahari, um, and uh, this lady you can see here, her name is Sue Kemp. Uh, she started an, an organization or a project called Chahari Nepal. Um, that, by the way, uh, that's how you say Nepal, by the way. Just, uh, it's, it's just funny that the number of uh, folk that I've spoken to have said, uh, you know, how was, your, how was your time in Nepal? Um, and uh, it's, it's Nepal, okay? So, anyway, um, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about uh, Chahari uh, later on. Sue started uh, all this project as an education project, um, and what she uh, noticed, next slide please, is that there's a lot of uh, young kids like this one just uh, on the streets, just running around, like no 
not going to school. Why not? Um, that's the question that she asked herself. And the reason why they weren't going to school is because they couldn't read or write Nepali, the, the, the main language there. Um, they also, in many cases, couldn't speak or understand Nepali. And all of government education is in the Nepali language. So most of them couldn't go to school. And the ones that did dropped out in the first year. 90% of them dropped out in the first year. Um, so, what Sue started to do was uh, there was a Nepali teacher working with her at the time and she asked if she would mind teaching some of these local kids uh, Nepali for, um, you know, two hours a day um, on her veranda. And the veranda gives shade, hence Chahari Nepal. Okay, so, um, the uh, Nepali teacher agreed um, and uh, next slide please. Um, uh, they, they, they sort of learn uh, Nepali for two hours a day in the shade um, and they also learn about good school habits, the things that they would need to be able to survive in a school because not knowing the language, not being able to read or write is not really the only reason why there was such a high dropout rate for these children. You know, they have no concept of uh, sharing or cooperation, following instructions from a teacher, basic hygiene, all these things were just you know, really alien. So part of Chahari Nepal's work was not only to teach them the language, how to read and write, but also to teach them these school habits as well, good habits. And then after a year, thank you very much, they would sort of take them along to enrollment, take them to the local government school and try and help them enroll. And actually, um, from one class of four children, um, that's not these four, but this was just a, a nice photo, um, one class of four children has grown uh, over six years into 37 classes in different districts with 20 children in each class. Really tremendous growth. And in, uh, between 2006 and 2009, they had a 75% success rate of entering children into government schools. Last year, they had an 80% success rate. And it's a, it's a charitable organization. That's it, my main work was with these people. So even though you know, we went out with INF, Esther is the INF post holder. Uh, my, my work was, was not with them. My main work was to support her. Um, uh, but I was also able to involve myself in some other things too. Uh, and so my, my main work was with Chahari Nepal. I did uh, a lot of work uh, in the office helping them with things that needed to be done in English, helping to train the, the teachers. Uh, I have a teaching background myself. Um, but uh, we were also asked by Tim to share a little of how Nepal has uh, impacted us and the things that we have noticed since uh, coming back. So I'd just like to hand over to Esther for that. Um, we've only been back for six weeks, so we're still going through a process of adjustment um, and figuring out what we've experienced and learned that's going to stay with us and what we need to let go. Um, but one question we've been asking ourselves a lot since we come back is, what does it mean to be a Christian in this society. People who convert to Christianity in Nepal pay a big cost. Many of them are ostracized from their families because Nepali culture is very tied up with the Hindu faith and it's difficult to establish what is cultural and what is Hinduism. It means that they will watch what they eat when they go to people's houses in case the food has been offered to the gods. Um, it means that they will not be available for their family to carry out rites and rituals. And it also means that they become very, very aware of the spiritual realm and what spiritual warfare is. You probably would not find a person in Nepal, regardless of religion, 
who does not believe that the spirit world is very, very active. And we've come back to a culture which is very, very different. Um, and so whereas it's impossible to be a passive Christian in Nepal, you have to daily make decisions about how your faith is going to impact the choices you make. We've come into a society where the challenges are there, but they're much more subtle. Um, a few days after we returned, we, um, we drove up to Scotland and we stopped at a service station for a break. And we walked into WH Smith. And we were struck by a wall full of magazines um, with people on the front, male and female, who weren't wearing many clothes. Um, the headlines were all about uh, gossip. And we were very, very shocked by that. I think that stepping out of a culture for a while, you come back and you look at it through slightly different eyes. And so we're saying, as, I guess as Christians, we're figuring out how are we going to change our lifestyle in this culture? What aspects of this culture are we going to embrace? Um, and how do we need to guard ourselves against uh, complacency, I guess, which is potentially where we were before we went away? And how does our experience with being in a place where the spiritual is very, very real, impact the way we view our non-Christian friends here, whom we love very dearly and we enjoy being with. But how is that going to change how we respond to them and how much we share our faith? So there are the issues which are in our head, which we are trying to, to work out at the moment. Thank you so much. Just, just stay, stay, stay here. Just, uh, you shared so much, just so briefly in those pictures as well. You've so bravely gone uh, and courageously and obediently gone to serve the, the Lord. Uh, let's, let's just as we say, let's pray for these guys. Uh, and in a sense, we're praying for ourselves with that implicit challenge. Father, as we look to live every single moment of every single day for you, we want to thank you so much for Ross and Esther and for what they've Brought both uh, Esther's direct work with um, some of these guys right on the margins of humanity, feeling that way, and yet uh, through her obedience and courage, your love directly impacting those children and uh, adults, that man paralyzed. We pray, Lord, that uh, that one act of sacrificial love, you'd speak to the community, that nation. Lord, for Ross and uh, his work with, what was it, Shari, Chahari. Chahari Nepal. hope I said that right. Lord, again, the, just the light and the love and the life that he's brought. And Father, we ask your blessing on them as they prepare for the birth of this little one. We ask your blessing on them as uh, you rest them and chelt them over this Christmas season and as you root them in uh, a new chapter in their lives up up north in Scotland. Lord, that you provide work for them and a community for them and a church for them, a fellowship to give back to them where they have given out. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Let's bless the Lord through these guys here.
Um, don't worry, I am aware of the time, uh, and uh, that's not Ross and Esther. That we've we just uh, we've been worshiping the Lord actually, and enjoying the children and enjoying the family. Here's this little epilogue on the story that if you've been coming over these last few weeks, you've become very familiar with as we've read it and heard it. Um, we've been looking at two boys who each in their own way have been lost to the father. One obviously so, because he was in a distant country and uh, he was hung over and he was eating in a pigsty. He probably had sexually transmitted diseases through what he was doing. And then this uh, one that's harder to discern because he was still at home. He was right by the father. And yet he was just as lost. We see it in his anger. All these years I've been slaving for you, he says. Duty has swamped joy. And uh, he's begun to look down on his uh, brother, this son of yours. And you, you pick up through the language, the distance from the love of the father, his anger when his father is looking to celebrate and rejoice. And so we see the sort of relational distance and we've, we've tracked for ourselves perhaps times when we resonate with the younger son and we've run away from God and we've run away from what we know he's calling us to and if you're anything like me, you've probably seen yourself too in the older son where uh, living, the Christian life and Christian living has become something of a, a burden, uh, a duty rather than a joy. Tim Keller calls it duty without beauty. We've lost sight of the beauty of the Father. It's become a grind and a drudgery. And, and here's where I just want to... Uh, offer this morning is that uh, it's just this reminder that Jesus is telling this story verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15 with with the older brothers as it were the ones who've lost sight of the beauty of God he's he's telling this story and in a sense he's pleading with them will you discover will you see yourself in this story and will you will you come back to the father you need to know yourself lost Effectively, he's saying, even though you're in the Father's house, know yourself lost in order that you might be found. John Newton, the uh, slave ship owner who uh, was um, part of the slave trade, and then one day, his uh, one terrible storm, his ship was wrecked, and he cried out to God, Oh, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And miraculously, he was uh, rescued and saved. And he looks back at that moment in his life as the point of his, not just his physical salvation, but his spiritual salvation. And he penned, as you probably know, I'm sure you know, the uh, immortal lines in that famous hymn we often sing here. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because he believed that God had answered his prayer and rescued him. And so he was determined, as Ross and Esther were saying, to live every day of his life in response and gratitude to the God who'd rescued him. I once was lost, he was able to acknowledge, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And the, the final invitation of this story is just whether you and I, whether we can see what Jesus is doing by being the brother to each and every one of us. Because in the story, as you'll be familiar by now, Jesus tells of um, 
a, a younger brother who's been tainted and stained by sin who comes in to the family feast. And there's a good boy who's done nothing wrong. And he, as the story is left on this cliffhanger, he's out. The rebel is in and the good boy is out, which offends something of our sensibilities, if we're honest. It's not fair. It's not right. Until we see the sort of the, the underlay of the cross through this story, it kind of emerges as we sit in it. Because Jesus was the ultimate good boy. We, we'll have rehearsed in our Christmas readings and the carol services next week. Jesus, John chapter 1, who was at the Father's side, full of grace and truth. It, side is a polite translation. It's it, literally in the Father's chest or in his, in his bosom. His head kind of nestling, listening to the heartbeat. He's so close to the Father. He's in. If anyone is in relationship with the Father, it's Jesus. Yet for our sake, he chooses to put himself out. He doesn't consider equality with God something to be held onto, but he releases that and comes down to us. He limits his divinity into our humanity. And not only that, he humbles himself to death on a cross. He slaves not for himself and his own justification. He slaves for us. He becomes a slave on a cross. He's the ultimate outcast as on the cross he cries my God my God why have you abandoned me Jesus performs the ultimate role reversal for us the one who was most in becomes most out in order that each and every one of us whether we're the younger son on a rebellious trajectory whether we're an older son nursing grudges and resentment, Jesus, he's borne the cost. He's taken the burden. He's restored the relationship. And the invitation is for each and every one of us to hear God the Father through the actions of the Son on the cross to come home to celebrate. It may be that we've got a journey quite some way. It may be that we just have to turn to the Father who's always been there. Everything I have is yours and you are always with me. Jesus has the Father saying. That's Father God to each and every one of us. So my invitation as we reflect over this last term, as we go on into Christmas and consider the wonder of Emmanuel, God with us, is will we hear him? Will we receive him afresh? Will we lay down our lives in order that we might receive his life in us? In Jesus' name, amen.